The rest of you, I'd invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, the Go- Luke's Gospel. It's in the New Testament. It's the third Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you don't have a Bible, the text is printed for you in your order of worship. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we've got a couple on the back table I would love to put in your hands as our gift to you. But any way that you can have it, it's good for you to have text in front of you. I forgot to introduce myself at the beginning. Forgive me for that. My name is Rick. I'm the pastor here at Holy Cross. Uh, And for the last few weeks, we've been looking at how the coming of Jesus was not an unlooked-for event or kind of a a new beginning of a new spin on religion. Jesus was long expected. And he was long expected because of the fact that God made a promise right at the beginning of things to set the world to rights, the world that we had messed up. When we had ruined ourselves and everything else, he promised to set things to rights. And this week, we want to cap that off because... Look, the Bible says a lot of things, right? I mean, it, if you've ever picked it up and read it, you know that it says a lot of things. If you if you never picked it up and read it, uh, my guess is you probably assume that it says a lot of things. But ultimately, it's about one thing. And that one thing is where our text takes us this morning, to see the fulfillment of the story. So if you have your place in uh, Luke 24, as is our habit here, I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's Word. We're going to be reading verses 13 to 27. In Luke 24, this is God's very word, friends. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Clopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was to be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some, of, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels. He said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see the body. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Friends, this is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, we have come into this room with a bunch of different things. We have come with our story that is long and, uh, and winding. And many of us have come with with stories of of pain and hardship. Others of us have come with stories of triumph and joy. But, Lord, you are calling us now to bring our story into yours. And so we ask that you would work in us this morning that that would happen. Would you open our hearts, open our minds, speak to us, preach your gospel to us. Let Christ and his cross come to the fore. Let the one who speaks fall to the wayside so that you might receive all the glory, Lord. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Now, if I were to show you a film clip, which is not my habit, I won't do it, but if I were to show you a, a film clip that showed um, 
A young boy speaking of disturbing visions with a child psychologist while his mother was doing stuff in the background, and I were to ask you, what is this movie about? Your answer would be one thing. This is what this movie is about. If I were to then uh, play for you the climactic scene of the same movie, The Sixth Sense, you would answer that question very differently, wouldn't you? Now, of course, every time you went back and watched that first scene, you would, see, you would watch that scene knowing what was that climactic scene. And, and what would happen is as you go back to watch that movie, you would see things that you didn't see before, little hints of things that maybe weren't there uh, the first time you saw them. It, it would be like you were, you were looking finally at the puzzle with the missing piece in place, and the whole picture would make sense. The same is true of the Bible. I mean, the question, what is the Bible about, is insanely important. And it is insanely important uh, because of this, this very fact, that if we get that answer wrong, if we get the answer wrong of what this book is about, then we will never understand the things that we read in it. They won't make sense. And we'll never be able to make sense of the faith that springs from this book. So what do you think it's about? What is the Bible about? A new morality? Maybe, um, maybe an ancient history of the beliefs of primitive peoples, right? Believing in crazy things like resurrections and miracles. We know better. Maybe it's a religious system for self-improvement. Maybe we believe it's, it's really about love and acceptance. This morning, our passage tells us exactly what the Bible is about. Ultimately, it's about a person. There's an outline in your bulletin, if that's helpful to you. As always, uh, we're going to look at this text in three ways. We're going to look at dashed hopes. We're going to look at a renewed vision. And then finally, we're going to look at a storied faith. Okay? Dashed hopes, a renewed vision, and a storied faith. Let's start with dashed hopes. Before we do, let me set the scene for us real quick as we get into this text. We've been talking about Advent, which means we've been talking about Jesus' birth, right? But here I jump to the end of the story. This is talking about what happened after his death. Jesus has died. He's died at the hands of the Romans. Nailed to a cross. This is three days after this. And two of Jesus' disciples, one of whom uh, is named Clopas, is the only one we know uh, his name in this passage. They're wa- he and, and this other guy are walking the seven or so miles from Jerusalem to a village named Emmaus. And more than likely, one of them lived there, right? Because they end up going in a house and having a meal, and that comes a little later. Uh, and while they're walking, Luke tells us that Jesus walks up to them and walks with them, but their eyes are kept from recognizing them. And he asks them what they're talking about, which startles them. I'm thinking everybody knows what we're talking about. Um, but then he insists on them continuing, and Clopas begins talking. Now look at what he says in verse 19. He starts this out, and he describes him, describes the one they're talking about as Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in word and in deed before God and all the people. Now, here is a guy who is acknowledging the fact that he had he had heard and seen Jesus do and say certain things, okay? He's not talking about second-hand knowledge. He's talking about first-hand knowledge, Jesus of Nazareth. Mighty in word and in deed, a prophet. And in the first century, in first century Judaism, a prophet was understood to be someone who spoke for God, okay, so, and someone who called God's people back to faithfulness to him. It's very important as, we, as you understand reading any of the, the books of the prophets. They're not, just like, they're not fortune tellers, and we often look at prophets and we think fortune tellers. They're not fortune tellers. They're there speaking for God, calling his people back to faithfulness to him. 
being mighty in word and in deed meant that he was able to engage people in argument without fail. Okay? He said things boldly. He said things, as, as we're told in the Gospels, with an authority that other teachers didn't have. And he was mighty in deed, which is kind of um, not indeed, as in like two, but he, in, in the things he did. Okay? He was mighty in the things he did, which is um, kind of Bible talk for he did miracles. He did wacky stuff. Made bread multiply, walked on water, crazy things, okay? And when Clopas says that he, he did all these things before God and all the people, what he means is that what he said and did was pleasing to God. It had divine approval on the one hand, and, and that it had the backing of the people. In other words, Jesus was a public figure saying public things that honored God and helped others flourish. This is really important. It's really important because one of the central claims of Christianity is that it is public truth. It is public truth. In other words, it's not some kind of esoteric secret given to a few, right? It's not, it's not something that somebody came up with. They, they walked out of a cave and said, I heard these things from God. Or they, they had um, translated some special tablets with magic eyeglasses, okay? Like, this is public truth. It happened in the public sphere. Amongst people both who agreed with what he was saying and people who didn't agree with what he was saying. In other words... Um, you have public teaching, public events, all of which are easily countered or disproven if they aren't based in fact. Okay? Uh, something similar. Everyone knows that in the late 90s, O.J. Simpson drove a white Ford Bronco. Why does everyone know? Uh, some of you are like, it's because you weren't alive then. Um, but uh, everyone knows he drove a white Ford Bronco. Why? Because it was on TV. Everyone saw it for miles in this slow, low-speed chase, right? Public truth. It was a public event. Now, here's the rub. Look down at verses 20 and 21. The problem is not Jesus of Nazareth, prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all people. The problem is this. The high priests and the rulers handed him over to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he would redeem Israel. Now stop there. Let's, let's start with this idea of redeeming Israel and work backwards. First century Jews understood that their world was messed up, right? They didn't need CNN to tell them. They didn't need psychology to explain it to them. They experienced it. The world's messed up. We're messed up. They got it, okay? What's more, they believed what they read in the Old Testament. The same things that if you've been here the last few weeks, you've heard us talk about here. Namely this, that, that we were made for God, but had turned from him. We were made to be in a dependent, loving relationship with him, but had turned away from him. And that now, we are all hopelessly in need of rescue. Both from the sin that we are enslaved to, and the judgment due for that betrayal. Okay? You with me? But they also rightly believed that God had promised to rescue us. He had promised to reconcile us out of uh, purely his grace. Not because we had earned it, because we hadn't. There's nothing we had done that would have possibly motivated him to do this. And they believed that he would do this through an agent, a person. A person who would lead God's people. They understood to be Israel. They would lead God's people and deliver them from those who oppressed them and from their sin. Okay? In other words, they're living under the rule of people who hate their God, think he's a joke, and, and they are kept under the thumb of this guy by the name of Caesar. And they think that this person who's going to come, this agent of God, will redeem them, deliver them both from the rule of Caesar and from their sin. And they called this redemption. Okay? Redemption. In some way, God would act through this person, defeat their enemies, the Romans, 
finally deal with their sin and restore the world to what God had intended for it in the first place. So when Clopas says that they hoped Jesus would redeem Israel, this is what he meant. Okay? Not take them off to be some pie in the sky, da-da-da-da. Real world effects. Okay? But here's the problem. Jesus had been crucified. What did Rome do with those who rose up to rebel against them? They crucified them. Let me be clear. Crucifixion was not something you did for people who were thieves. The men who were crucified on either side of Jesus didn't steal bread. They were uh, terrorists, lack of a better word. Okay? We We mistranslate that word too much. Jesus had been crucified. That was not in the plan. How could this person who seemed to be set apart by God, through whom God seemed to be doing such amazing things, how could this person be so abandoned by God that he would be killed by the very people he should have defeated? That is the entire question they are arguing about. And I could almost imagine the argument, can't you? You've had those kind of conversations, whether it's with yourself or with someone else, where where. You're terribly and utterly disappointed trying to make sense out of both the things that you know and have witnessed and, and, and what is now the utter defeat that you feel. Because you see, to Clopas and, and this other guy, Jesus was a failure. That's the reality. Jesus was a failure. They knew how the story was supposed to end. They understood it. It was to end with their new king, mighty in word and in deed, sitting on a throne in Jerusalem and overwhelming the Romans and the rest of the world and vindicating Israel as the true people of God. That's how the story was supposed to end, and that is not what happened. Okay? But then they start talking about this other news they can't seem to make sense of. Look down at verses 22 through 24. They talk about some of the women who had visited the tomb and didn't find Jesus, but instead had some vision of angels who said he's alive. Now, of course, this had to be confirmed, right? For a couple of reasons. One, because that's flat out crazy. And two, because um, it's the first century. And there's no such thing as gender equality in the first century. Okay? So in other words, some, some of those with them, and when you hear that read, some men went down to confirm this because you crazy ladies, they don't know what they're doing. Let's go down and confirm this, okay? And they found it exactly as they had said, but without the angels. Now, let's be really clear. These guys have no clue what to do with this. They have no paradigm for this. Some of us have become so accustomed to the story of Jesus' death and resurrection that it doesn't seem surprising to us. Well, duh. Like, of course he's going to raise from that. Others of us have such a historical arrogance about us, don't we? Uh, Such a historical arrogance about us that when we read things like this, all we think is about those silly, silly primitive people who believe crazy superstitious things like people rising from the dead. Look, that, that is simply not the case. They, like us, know that people don't come back from the dead. They know it. They didn't expect it. They don't know what to do with it. They have no clue what to do with this news. This is an account that has now been verified by other witnesses. Multiple people have gone to the tomb that they know he was in, he's not there, and they have no clue what to do with it. Why? Because it's not an event they were looking for. Those are the dashed hopes. Let's look at a renewed vision. 
first by seeing hints of the end. Jesus, who they still don't recognize, takes over. Look down at verses 25 to 26. He says, oh, you foolish and slow of heart. Now stop there for a minute. I want you to imagine this. Just, let's just take Jesus out of the equation for a minute. Let's imagine this. You're talking with your buddy. You're walking along. Somebody comes up. They listen to you. What are you talking about? You start talking. He's like, man, you are a fool. That's not going to go well, right? But, but for some reason it does with, with Jesus. Um, but, but here it is. Basically what he tells them is, y'all don't get it. You don't get it. They are foolish and slow to believe all the prophets spoke. Okay? Here's what's happening. Jesus is telling them that though they didn't, they should have seen this coming. They should have seen this coming. Their problem is not that recent events have ruined their hopes. Jesus is saying that their problem is their hopes are in the wrong place. Their hopes are in the wrong place. It isn't that the crucifixion and the apparent, you know, to their perspective at that point, the apparent resurrection of Jesus doesn't fit as a conclusion of the story. It's that they never really understood the story in the first place. If the end that God had written didn't fit the story, it's because they didn't understand the story. Now, before we start getting down to these guys, uh, you know, seeing them as kind of silly, how come they didn't get this? We need to understand that no one got this. Look, Jesus literally told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. And you know what they said? They all sat around going, what do you think he meant by rise from the dead? Like, it's like, uh, they, they just could not get it in their head that this was going to happen. Why? Because the notion that God's rescuer would suffer and die was nowhere close to their minds. They could think of nothing other than the fact, at this point, that Jesus was a failure. And Jesus is telling them that these things were hinted at all along. But here's the thing. It, it may not be the way you think. Now, when Jesus said the prophets, right? He said, how slow you are to believe of what all that the prophets spoke about. Some of us, especially if you've been raised in the church, right? You know who the prophets are. Um, you probably have some kind of Bible song in the middle of your head telling you what the books of the Bible are. And it has to do with Isaiah through Malachi, right? The last few books of the Old Testament. But Jesus was using this as a catch-all for all of the Old Testament. That is why he says in verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? What he is saying is that the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, they would have simply called the Bible, uh, what, what there is their Bible should have led them to understand that no other conclusion other than this one, that God's agent, the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer and then enter into glory, that no other conclusion could have happened. And here's why. Because many of us are like, really? How, how does that work out? Well, here's why. The Old Testament tells the story ultimately of two unreconciled parties. God and us. We betrayed him. We turned from him. That's what the Bible calls sin, right? It's a betrayal. It's relational. I know most of us grew up thinking that sin is about rules. You break the rules, right? It's like breaking curfew. No, no, no. It's not like that. It's relational. It's more like adultery, less like breaking curfew, okay? It, it, that's, that's, what, that's what sin is. And the reality is that betrayals don't go away. They don't go away, do they? They don't, they don't just kind of okay, I was betrayed, but no big deal. Like, they don't go away. But God is just. That is something that is clear in the scriptures. But that isn't the only reason why this betrayal couldn't just go away. No betrayal just goes away. None of them. Think about it. If you steal $20 from me, you're my buddy, 
I, I hand you my wallet, and I say, could you just hold this for a minute? And you take $20 from me, which, by the way, don't try. I don't carry cash. But that's, that's neither here nor there. If you steal 20 bucks from me, I'm out 20 bucks, aren't I? It doesn't just magically appear back in my wallet if I'm like, no big deal. We're good. Fist bump. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't just happen. If I want it back, if I want my 20 bucks back, I need to extract it from you somehow. All betrayals are like that. And so the Old Testament tells the story of humanity guilty before God and liable before him for judgment because we betrayed him. But it's also about God loving the the ones that he's made. Listen, I know, I know that many of us, whether we were taught this or simply it just appears that way, we, we have the notion that the Old Testament gives you a God of wrath, a God of judgment, a God who's mean and angry and just grumpy. He's like Oscar the God, you know, Oscar the Grouch God. And then, and then, but, but the New Testament gives us this God of love, right? Can I tell you, you can really only hold on to that vision if you've never actually read the book. Because the consistent refrain of the Old Testament is that God is something called long-suffering. It means that he's patient, that he's literally long-suffering. He suffers long under the betrayal of people, consistently and constantly. He is continually betrayed over and over again by us, even when we've promised to do better. Like, God, I'm going to do better this time. You know how that goes, right? I'm going to do better this time. Like, five minutes later, it's done. Wednesday, New Year's Day, time for resolutions, right? They last normally about 35 seconds. Maybe it'll last a little longer for you, but the point is the same. Consistently, that's, the, that's what the Old Testament tells us. It is so bad that in one of, the, one of the prophets, the book of Hosea, God compares himself to a man who has a wife who leaves her husband and to go become a prostitute. Like, that's what God compares himself to. I am like, I'm like the, the best husband ever, and my wife has gone off to be a prostitute. God consistently loves and bears with us. So how can these two realities coincide? How can God be loving and yet still deal with our betrayal? How can he be loving and just? Friends, that is why Jesus says that the prophets said that what happened was necessary. You see, the scriptures say over and over that a reckoning must come for sin. Yet it also says over and over that God will provide for us. And that is what happened in Jesus. Because you see, if you steal that $20 from me, I have a choice to make. I can either, like I said, extract it from you, in which case you pay, literally, for what you did wrong to me. Or I can forgive you, in which case I pay for what you did. That is what the cross is. God forgives by bearing our betrayal himself. It was necessary, you see, because forgiveness always costs something. If forgiveness doesn't cost, it's not forgiveness. It might be avoidance. It might be denial. But it's not forgiveness. Forgiveness always costs something. Because of that, Jesus is the only fulfillment of the story of the Old Testament that makes sense. And that's why he revisits the story with them. Look down at verse 27. He begins with Moses and all the prophets and walks through the whole of the Old Testament to show them that it is about him. 
Now, some of you are probably thinking, but look, if it's so obvious, if, if really the Old Testament is really about Jesus, why didn't people get it? I mean, the Old Testament doesn't even talk about Jesus. As in, like, there will come this dude, he'll be named Jesus, and he's going to do this, this, and this. Well, it does and it doesn't. See, follow me. Key elements of this story scream for the very thing Jesus did. Most of us think, like many of us think in our, in our culture that what we really need, what we really need, we, we all know that things are messed up, but what we really need is a teacher. We just need someone to kind of give us the right ideas, the right things to maybe to believe, but mainly just to do. But the Old Testament tells us that God's people had his law. They knew what to do. They just couldn't keep it. So others of us think we needed a leader, right? Because if we just had a strong enough leader, that's, look, that is our national narrative today. If we just have the right person leading us, everything will be better. And we have different definitions of what that right person will be, right? Whether he's on the right or on the left. or da, da, da. But look, again, the Old Testament says it over and over again. No amount of coercion can reconcile us to another person. And others of us think that what we really need isn't a leader, it's not a teacher, it's a guru. It's someone to kind of come along and help us to feel better about ourselves. Because, look, we, all we really deal with is this shame and guilt. If we just get rid of the shame and guilt, then, then we feel better. And we, what we really just need to do is feel better about ourselves. Mm, yes. But look, the Old Testament tells us that that never deals with what is actually wrong with us. It's not an illusion. It's true. What we needed was for God to become flesh, to live the life that we couldn't, to bear the judgment for our betrayal that we dare not, so that we could return to the dependence on God we were made for through faith. That is what the Old Testament screams for as a conclusion, and that, that is what Jesus did. Now, keeping all that in mind, I'd like to give us a couple of points of application if I can. The first is about keeping the center the center, okay? Remember the question from the beginning, what is the Bible about? Jesus tells us it's about him, but the problem is, is that often, Christian and non-Christian, we become so sidetracked into peripheral things uh, that those things become central. Here's what I mean. Many of us will refuse to approach the Bible, refuse to even begin to believe any of it because of its position on X. You name it. Okay? Others of us who actually do believe the Bible become so caught up in the Bible's position on X, we focus on it as if it's the core of what the Scripture teaches. Right? Jesus has just told us in this text the ultimate point of the Bible is to speak about who he is and what he has done, right? One way of looking at that is to say that Jesus is the deep end of the pool. Right? He's the deep end of the scriptural pool. Now, the peripheral things, those are, like, those are like the shallow end. Okay? Now, that is not to say that the Bible does not have positions on those things. Sexuality, finances, gender, um, uh, justice. But those things are like the shallow end. You wade in the shallow end and you dive into the deep end. If you dive into the shallow end, you get hurt, possibly killed. You dive into the deep end. Okay? Listen to me. 
some of us in this room, we do not like what the Bible says about sexuality, right? That it's only to be expressed within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, right? I get that. I get that. But are you really saying that because you don't like what the Bible says about that, that Jesus couldn't have possibly been raised from the dead? That his claims could not possibly be true because I don't like what it says about this. Really? I don't believe that. Or Christian, okay? That's for those who, who can't approach, who just don't want to approach the Bible. But others of us, Christians. Let's say that you get your secular friend to agree with you that God's designed for humanity to flourish. God's design for humanity to flourish includes the exclusive use of our sexuality for the sake of of our spouse. Let's say you win that one. Do you honestly think they're closer to Jesus because you've won that argument? They're not. They're not. The scriptures must be read with the proper order in mind. The person work of Jesus first, the ethics second, and then the practical, the practice stuff third. When we mix these things up, Christian or non-Christian, we have serious problems. Okay? But lastly, I want to address this phrase that Jesus uses. It is necessary. And we really need to get this. Because some of us think that we're doing okay. Right? We're, we're doing pretty good. I mean, we're not perfect, right? But we're not like Hitler or anything. And you hear me talk about our need for Jesus, our need for a rescuer. You may have even latched onto that phrase, like, rescuer. And you're like, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. And you're like, Rick, look. I'm just here to do a little self-improvement. I don't really know about all this, like, faith in Jesus thing. I mean, he's cool and all, but I'll just follow his teaching. Really? Have you ever tried that? You think the Old Testament laws are, like, strict and, like, wow, man, that's, that's, who could ever do that? Try what Jesus says. Like, he's not talking, you think you're doing okay because you haven't murdered anybody. Jesus is like, if you're angry with somebody, you murdered them. I'm like, oh, you think you're okay, like you're faithful to your spouse. Jesus says, you ever look on another person lustfully? And that doesn't just mean sexually lustfully. It means wanting them, right? Some of us hear that phrase and we only think guys. Guys are, oh, I struggle with lust. Listen, ladies, have you ever wanted somebody else's husband? Because you're like, if my husband were just more like that husband, he'd be good. Guess what? Adultery. Try it. It's not, like, trying to keep Jesus' laws and his teachings isn't as easy as it might sound. But look, I have, I have great news for you. You are way worse than you think you are. You are way worse than you think you are. You see, we tend to view ourselves according to what we think is important. You listening? We view ourselves according to what we think is important. And we tend, we, we, we all do this. I don't care if you're an upstanding member of the Chamber of Commerce or someone who deals out 50 rocks on the corner of Stafford and Johnson Street. We all view ourselves as, as okay as compared to the dude across the street or the dude across town or the dude across the office from us. What I do isn't as bad as what they do. We all do this. But listen to me. God is the judge his is the standard, not me, not you. His, he is the standard, and none of us measure up. 
you don't need self-improvement. You don't need self-improvement. Because the chief problem the Bible brings to our attention is our focus on self. But here's the thing. You are way worse than you think, but you're also way more loved and provided for than you'd ever dream. God isn't looking for you to make it up to him. Because you can't. He isn't waiting for you to make things better because you can't. You can't deal with your stubborn independence from God through stubborn independence. You need a rescuer. And that is why Jesus says it was necessary. Jesus came to rescue you, not to reform you and not to remind you what you need to do next. He came to rescue you. Friends, stop placing your faith and your hope in your own efforts. Your own morality, your own understanding of reality, your own, your own, your own. Place your faith in Christ. He is the entire point of the story. And friends, he is the answer to your greatest longings and your deepest needs. Would you pray with me? Lord, everyone in this room needs that message, myself included, maybe especially me. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us. I pray that you give us hearts to receive Christ as our rescuer this morning. Some of us think we're doing all right. We think we're doing pretty good, and, and we, we are, uh, you know, we just, just need a little something extra in our lives. But we need a rescuer. Others of us, others of us show down on ourselves that we, we think a rescuer isn't enough. All of us simply need a rescuer. And Lord Jesus, you came, you lived, you died. You were long expected as a rescuer. So Lord, I pray that you would help us all to place our faith, whether it's for the first time or just for the first time in the last 10 minutes, back into the one who can rescue us. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You'd stand with me, please. You'll find printed in your bulletin our confession of faith. This morning we confess our faith using the historic Apostles' Creed. We do this because let's be.